Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24 is our passage for today. The title of our message is The Way of Prospering. The Way of Prospering, Genesis chapter 24. This is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, in case you wanted to know that. Um, and uh, we're going to read it, okay? I'm going to read it. You follow along. We're not going to be able to walk back through every verse of this, okay? So pay close attention while we read it, um, and that will help you out um, as we walk through the, the message today. But um, there's nothing better that we can do than just to hear God speak. Now, that's not, not my voice. My voice is not God's word. But as I read from God's word, this is his word that we are hearing. Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camel, camels also until they finish drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. She drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. 
As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife. For my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. If, and if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arm. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. They called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent Rebekah away with their sister and her nurse. And, and excuse me, sent away Rebekah, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. 
And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts to the amazing truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you're like me, you like to succeed. Would you raise your hand if you like to succeed today? If, do you like to su- succeed? I hope everybody raised your hand because if you don't, that means you like to fail. I don't think I've ever met anyone who ever sets out with the goal to fail. You know what? I'm going to go do this and I really hope I fail. Now, I don't think any of us do that. Uh, I played a board game with my kids the other day, which I won. And, uh, and one of my children um, started to get upset. And I asked her what was wrong. And she says she was upset because... She wanted to win, right? She wanted to win. I use it as an opportunity, as I try to always do when I win, which is most of the time. And um, though they, they have now gotten to where they can win some, and um, even when I'm trying my hardest, they still beat me sometimes. And, uh, but I use it as an opportunity to, uh, one, share with her how not to be a sore loser. But I also told her this. I said, it's okay to be disappointed when you don't win. That's okay. Because we should want to win. We should want to succeed at what we do. It's good to be disappointed when we don't succeed. Whether we're playing a board game or competing in a sporting event or showing up for our first day of school or heading off to our first day of college or starting a new job, we want to win. We share a desire to succeed in what we attempt to do. Now, I'm not preaching a sermon today about five simple steps to success. Or how to never fail. That's not the point of this passage. And that would be a sermon full of lies. The truth of the matter is that we're not perfect people and we don't live in a perfect world. We will experience failure. Life is not a bed of roses. There is no surefire way to go through all of life without ever experiencing the disappointment that comes with defeat. But there is a way which always prospers. And that way is God's way. God's will. God never fails at accomplishing his will. Now, sometimes his will and his way means difficulty in our lives, even suffering in our lives. But his will will always prosper, which means the more we align ourselves with God's will, the more we get to enjoy walking along the way of prospering. Genesis 24 teaches us that when we submit our way to God, to God's way, we can expect that our way will prosper. When we submit our way to God's way, we can expect our way to prosper. Because then our way is not just my way, it's God's way. Because I submitted my way to God's way. And when we walk in God's way, that way will always prosper. Now at this point in the storyline of Genesis, God has promised to send a deliverer for humanity and has promised that this worldwide blessing will come through Abraham. Abraham's wife has died, but not before she gave birth to a son. Now, Abraham, we've seen here, even in verse 1, is getting on up in age. And he knows that in order for the promise that God's made for offspring to continue, his son Isaac must get married and have offspring of his own. And so that's what this passage is all about, finding a wife for Isaac. But along the way, we get to view this adventure from a few different perspectives, but mainly from the viewpoint of this unnamed servant of Abraham who humbly submits to God's will, humbly submits to God's way, and as a result gets to experience the way of prospering. Now let's take just a moment and 
remind ourselves, as we just read, of the flow of this story and the people involved um, in this story. Get that into our minds. So what did we just read? Abraham sends his servant to the land where Abraham is from. To find a wife for his son Isaac, this woman needs to come from Abraham's family, from his clan, from his his kindred. Now, when he gets there, he meets this woman named Rebekah. And Rebekah is both the granddaughter of Abraham's brother Nahor and the great-granddaughter of Abraham's brother Haran. And yes, you heard me right. Rebekah is descended from both of Abraham's brothers. say, well, how does that happen? Abraham's brother Haran had a daughter named Milcah. Abraham's brother Nahor married Milcah. So one brother married his niece, okay? Was not that big of a deal back then. We wouldn't do that today, but wasn't that big of a deal back then. Together, they had a son named Bethuel, and Bethuel had a son named Laban and a daughter named Rebekah. So Rebekah is technically both Abraham's great-niece and great-great-niece, depending on which brother you're looking at. Which means, what's the point in all this? Well, that means that she is not only just a part of Abraham's kindred, she is a pretty close relative of Abraham. Which means that when the servant asks God to show him the one he has appointed for Isaac to marry, and God leads him to Rebekah, he is giving him great success. Remember the order, the directive. Find him a wife that is a part of my family. You, you, can't, you can't find a woman. There's no woman on the face of the earth that is more a part of Abraham's family than this woman right here. The goal is for Isaac to marry within the family, and Rebecca is both Isaac's second cousin and third cousin, depending on how you do the math there. I think everybody does starts counting cousins a little bit differently, but the way I count them, um, that's Isaac. Rebecca is Isaac's second cousin and his third cousin. Now, after Isaac meets Rebecca, he explains the situation to her family, especially to Laban. He goes back and recounts everything that had happened there, leading up to the encounter at the well and at the encounter at the well. And um, and so her brother and father agree to the arranged marriage. Rebecca chooses to go without delay. And by the time we get to the end of this chapter, Rebecca and Isaac are married. So we can say the journey, the mission is a success. The way of the servant was prosperous. Hopefully you heard that word multiple times throughout that passage. So I want to share with you, and some of these we're not going to spend much time on, but I want to share with you five truths concerning the way of prospering. Five truths which should help us submit to God's way and thus experiencing the, experience the prospering of God's will in our lives. Whether that's for a recent graduate or any of us, whatever stage of life we're on, We want to align ourselves with God's will so that we can experience this way of prospering. Truth number one is this. Church, allow God's word to determine your course of action. Allow God's word to determine your course of action. Abraham makes the servant swear a very specific oath. This oath is to find a wife for Isaac from Abraham's kindred who will come back to live in the land where Abraham and Isaac currently live. Why is that the stipulation? Why, why is that the rule, that, that, uh, the directive that Abraham gives to his servant? I mean, it would be far easier just to find a wife for Isaac among the people that live around them. And it would be a little bit harder than that, but still less hard than what Abraham says needs to happen. If, if the servant could just go and take Isaac with him, because this woman may not want to leave, and then he could just leave Isaac there. Right. Find a wife and just leave Isaac there. That would even be a little bit easier. But what the directive is, is to go without Isaac, find a wife 
for Isaac, persuade her, who's part of his family, persuade her to leave her land, her country, and travel to the land where Isaac lives, whom she has never met, and become his, uh, become his wife. That's, that's quite the set of instructions for this servant to have to abide by. Why is that the instruction from Abraham? It's because Abraham is submitting to God's word, which came to him in the form of, of a promise. Look at verse 7. We're going to skip around a little bit in this chapter, but look at verse 7. Abraham tells his servant the reason why. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And so Abraham is driven by God's word. According to God, the land will belong to Abraham's offspring, this land where Abraham and Isaac now live. It doesn't belong ultimately to the people who are currently living in the land. So if Isaac marries one of them, then he forfeits the land because God's already said it's not going to belong to the people who live in this land. It's going to belong to you and your offspring, Abraham. But also, if Isaac moves away to live in the land where Abraham is from, then he's going to forfeit the promised land. So the only way to submit to God's word is to display faith in God's promise by finding Isaac a wife from Abraham's kindred and bringing her back to the land of promise. Yes, that seems to be a difficult way to simply find a wife for Isaac, but it's the only course of action that is allowed because it is the course of action that is being determined by God's word. Abraham was submitted to God's word, and so was his servant. The servant travels possibly for months to get to the land where Abraham's kindred lived because that's what God's word required. And when Rebecca's brother and mother try to get them to delay, do you remember that? They wake up the next day and they say, well, why don't you all just hang around here for a little while? When that happens, the servant is not swayed. He says, do not delay. In verse 56, he is on a mission driven by God's word. The way probably seemed hard and unnecessary from a human perspective. But thankfully, both Abraham and his servant allowed God's word to determine their course of action. Brothers and sisters, the way of prospering, the way of finding ourselves experiencing the prospering of God's will in our lives is the way of submission to God's word. It's the way of allowing God's word and nothing else to determine our course of action. Will that be easy? No. Will that be popular? No. Will that always make sense in our human minds? No, it won't. But God's word is the final authority, and so God's word must determine our course of action. Truth number two along this way of prospering is this. Be motivated by God's supremacy, sovereignty, and steadfast love. Be motivated by God's supremacy, sovereignty, and steadfast love. You know, it's one thing to set out to do something if you are powerful enough to know and control the future. Right. I mean, that that kind of puts a little bit of a pep in your step. But if you had the power to know the future and control the future, kind of walk out in confidence. Right. It's another thing when you don't know, nor do you have the ability to know or control the future. Now, that second one is you and me. It was Abraham and his servant. We they don't know the future. We they don't have the power to control the future. And so what would keep us going when when the way that we think God's word is driving us to is hard or difficult or maybe doesn't make sense. 
Notice what motivates Abraham and his servant. They're not motivated by their own power or control or character. They are motivated by God's power, control, and character. They're motivated by his supremacy, sovereignty, and steadfast love. First, his supremacy. Verse 2, Abraham calls the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth. Verse 5, he calls God the Lord, the God of heaven. This was an acknowledgement that there is no one higher than God. He is supreme over all. Abraham's servant was motivated to do exactly what was in keeping with God's word because he believed that God was supreme. Do you believe that today? He believed that God, being supreme, was worthy to make the rules and call the shots for his life. To give the directives. And secondly, we see God's sovereignty in this passage, all over this passage. When we speak of God's sovereignty, we're speaking of his control over the affairs of this world. Now, if we're grounded in the truth that God is in control over all, then that's going to serve as a great motivation to submit to his way because we know that he's able to make his way prosper. No matter the difficulties, no matter the obstacles that come our way, he has, he's in control of all, so he's able to make his way and his will prosper, even in our lives. Twice in chapter 24, Abraham's servant speaks of God appointing Rebekah. The Lord appointed her. In verse 14, the servant is praying and he says, Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And then verse 44, he's retelling Laban what, telling Laban what he had prayed. And he includes this. He says, And when I prayed, I said, Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And so we see that the servant believed that God would appoint a woman. In other words, he believed that God would be at work behind the scenes, selecting the right woman and bringing her to him and revealing to him that this was the woman that he, God, had chosen. He believed God was sovereign over human affairs and that that motivated him to go in confidence, submitting to God's way. And then we also see God's steadfast love all over this passage of Scripture. Another way to say that is his faithful love. It's one thing for God to be supreme and sovereign. It's another thing for God to remain faithful in a loving way to his people. You see, God could be supreme, the highest, and sovereign in control. But if he wasn't faithful in love, he wasn't trustworthy. If he didn't show faithful love to his people by always keeping his promises, there wouldn't be much motivation to trust that he would use his supremacy and use his sovereignty to prosper his will in our lives. But church, God is steadfast in love four times the servant uses this phrase steadfast in love three of those times he uses it in reference to god that's verse 12 verse 14 and verse 27 and the fourth time he uses steadfast love is in verse 49 and there he's asking laban and bethuel if they will show steadfast love which is probably the servant's persuasive way of asking now will you reflect god's character God's being steadfast in love. Will you as well be steadfast in love? Two of the times, verse 27 and 49, he couples the word steadfast love with the word faithfulness. I mean, he's just driving this point home. And then he uses the word for faithfulness again in verse 46, in verse 46 where he says that the Lord, excuse me, verse 48, where he says, God led me by the right way. God led me by the right way. The word there is the word faithfully. It's the same word that he uses the other places. What's the point? The point is that the servant was trusting in the steadfast love, the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God. 
And that's how he knew that God was prospering his way, to bring him success as he submitted to God's way in his life. Friend, if we are not motivated in our lives as we seek to follow God's will by God's supremacy, that no one's higher than him, his sovereignty that he is in control, and his steadfast love that he is going to be faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him, we'll never submit to God's way, at least not for very long. What's going to keep you pursuing God's will in your life, even when it gets hard? What's going to keep you on that path of submitting to God's way when it's hard or unpopular or doesn't make sense? I believe it will be your humble acknowledgement of God's supremacy, his sovereignty, and his steadfast love. Think about it this way. In his supremacy, God answers to no one. In his sovereignty, God rules over everyone. And through his steadfast love, God uses his supremacy and sovereignty to graciously fulfill his good promises for those who belong to him. Those Brothers and sisters are the beliefs that must ground us and then will motivate us to keep submitting to the will of God in our lives so that we can experience the way of prospering. Truth number three concerning the way of prospering is this. Prayerfully seek God's guidance. Prayerfully seek God's guidance. Church, this one is simple to say in theory, it's easy to miss in actual practice in day-to-day life. We cannot expect to submit to God's way. We cannot expect to enjoy the prospering of God's way and will in our lives if we do not declare our dependence upon God through prayer. The first thing the servant does when he reaches the land of Mesopotamia is to pray. You know, you know what we say. We say, well, I've done everything else. I guess the only thing left to do is pray. Friends, prayer is not a last resort. It is first priority in our lives. Verses 12 through 14, he prays, asking God to grant me success. That's what he says. God, grant me success. And then he roots his request, as we've seen, in God's character of steadfast love and in his sovereignty. Then he retells that prayer in verse 42 through 44. Church, prayer is a declaration of our dependence Prayer isn't twisting God's arm to do something that he otherwise doesn't want to do. In fact, verse 14 and verse 45 tell us that before he had even finished praying, God was already granting his request. In other words, God was already at work answering his prayer before he even prayed it. Before he ever said amen. Which might lead us to question the necessity of prayer. I mean, if God already knows... And if he's already doing what he's going to do, and even what we're asking, then why take the time to stop and pray? Friend, prayer is not about you or me informing God of something he doesn't know. Remember, he's supreme and he's sovereign. You're not going to tell him anything that he doesn't know. You're not going to give him any advice that he goes, oh, yeah, I wish I'd have thought of that. Prayer is about God humbling your heart. Humbling my heart so that we are ready to see what he is already doing, ready to receive his steadfast love and ready to give him all the credit when we see that he does it, that he accomplishes his will. Prayer helps us stay in tune with God's way and cultivates dependence upon God to prosper his way in our lives as we acknowledge that we are helpless apart from him. So in humility, the servant prayerfully seeks God's guidance. 
And so must we if we're going to experience the prospering of God's will and God's way in our lives. Church family, truth number four along this way of prospering is this. Respond to success with humble worship of God. Respond to success with humble worship of God. One of the things that stands out in this passage as I was reading and studying, it was just leaping off the page at me, was was the, the quickness of the servant's response and the consistency of his response to give God all the glory whenever the way was successful. Whenever he encountered success, quickly worshiping God and consistently worshiping God. As soon as he meets Rebecca and sees her do exactly what he asked God for the right woman to do, and she tells him who he is, he immediately stops and he worships God. Verse 26 and 27, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham. Then he recounts this worship in verse 48. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. And then when Laban and Bethuel agree to let Rebekah go, With the servant, verse 52 says that the servant bowed himself to the earth, not before Laban and Bethuel, but before the Lord, before Yahweh God. And in verses 27 and 48, he credits the Lord with leading him, for you have led me, you have led me. And in verses 21, 40, 42, and 56, that's what I'm saying, it's all over this, we see the servant speak of the Lord prospering his way. He doesn't say, look at what I did. He says, look at what the Lord has done, prospering my way. Church, one of the clearest things we see in this passage is that the servant's heart is in a posture of worship directed toward the God of heaven and earth. Never once does he take credit. Constantly, the glory is being directed toward God. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot expect to experience the prospering of God's will in our lives if we are not living lives of God-centered worship where we quickly and consistently point to God as the one who is doing this prospering of His will in our lives. Pointing to Him as the one who is worthy of the attention and the praise and the glory. Listen, this Satan loves to trip us up here because we are so prone to pride in our lives. And even after we may have spent much time in prayer seeking the Lord's will, asking for His help, and then we see Him answer that prayer, and then sometimes in very subtle ways, sometimes in not subtle ways, we take the credit for it. I know that's true in my life. More times than I even want to even want to admit or think about. But notice how quickly and consistently he says, God is the one who's doing it. God is the one who's doing it. It's not me. It's his will. It's his way. It's his word. It's his promises. It's his supremacy and sovereignty and steadfast love. It's his guidance. It's God who prospers our way when our way is submitted to his way. And so he gets the glory. And so we must, church, be ready to respond to success in doing God's will with humble worship of God. Let me share this last truth with you. Truth number five concerning the prospering of God's way in our life. And it's this, play your part in God's eternal plan of redemption. You want to walk the way of prospering, walking in the path of God's will for your life, and you play your part in God's eternal 
plan of redemption. As we study the details of the servant finding a wife for Isaac, we don't want to miss the big picture of what's going on. It's the continuation of God's promises to Abraham and to the world. Remember, God has promised to bless Abraham and to give him offspring and to make his name great. And remember, those are ultimately salvation promises, which will bring a blessing for the whole world, have a worldwide impact. So notice with me some words and phrases which in this passage draw our minds to this big picture. Verse 1 specifically says the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. That's exactly what God said he would do. And then in verse 35, the servant says of Abraham, the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. That's exactly what God said he would do. Give him a great name. Verse 36, and Sarah, my wife's master, bore a son to my master. That's exactly what God said he would do. Give him an offspring. So we see God fulfilling this promise of blessing and making his name great and offspring. And then speaking of offspring, notice what Rebecca's brother and father say when Rebecca is leaving. They, they, they send her off with a blessing. You would do that. I would do that. We're sending our child off. We send them off with this blessing. Notice, notice what they say in their blessing. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. In other words, may God give you many, many descendants and may you have power over your enemies. May you prosper for generations to come. Now, they probably didn't realize it, but you know what they just basically did? They repeated God's promise to Abraham from Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Notice the similarity there. The angel of the Lord said to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. Think thousands upon thousands and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So in chapter 24, we see Rebecca receiving the same blessing as God had made to Abraham and to Isaac. And so our minds begin to be drawn to this big picture of what God is doing. And in the final verses of the passage, as Rebecca goes with the servant, meets Isaac, marries him, we see the stage being set for the next generation of the promised offspring, which is going to ultimately lead to Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Now, what's Jesus going to do? Well, church, what has Jesus done? He, he has done what God promised he would do. He's provided for our salvation through his sacrificial death in our place where he absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. And then he rose up from the dead, conquering death. Friend, if you've never believed in Christ alone for salvation, you didn't know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. That's why Isaac is getting this wife. That's why God is providing Rebecca for Isaac, because he's getting us to Jesus. And if we miss Christ in our lives, we miss the point of this passage. This passage isn't just about being successful in life. It's about getting us to Jesus and the way of God's will prospering in our lives as we submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's eternal plan of redemption, which he is sovereignly working out through Abraham sending his servant, through the servant humbly submitting to God's will, through Rebecca stepping out in faith to leave her country and kindred, and through Isaac receiving this wife that the servant brings back for him. They each played their role in God's grand plan of redemption. Now, for all we know, that servant of Abraham, he started out as a servant and he died as a servant. And we don't even know his name. But you know what he did? He faithfully fulfilled his part in God's plan of redemption. 
in a very real way, you and I get to sing about and talk about and study about and rejoice in the hope we have of eternal life through Jesus because this servant, and we don't even know his name, played his role in God's grand plan of redemption. Church, as we seek to submit to God's way and experience God's prospering his way in our lives, we've got to remember that God is doing something way bigger than you and me. God's doing something way bigger than you and me. God is getting salvation to every nation and saving people from every tribe and language and people. God is fulfilling his eternal plan of redemption. And the better we see ourselves as just a small part in this grand work God is doing, the better position we will be in to experience the prospering of God's will in our lives. Because you know what that drives home? That it's not about us. It's about the Lord. And that's when we're ready to be used by God. To do whether we think it's small things or big, big things. In his grand plan of redemption. It's ultimately about Jesus. So let me just ask this question. Is your life about Jesus? You want to walk the road of prospering in your life? Is your life about Jesus? You want to walk the way of God's will for you? Is your life all about Jesus? It starts with submitting your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin and believing Him for salvation, and then when we have believed in Christ for salvation and we're ready to experience the prospering of God's will in our lives, we want to step back and we want to say, am I allowing God's word to determine my course of action? Am I being motivated by God's supremacy and sovereignty and steadfast love? Am I prayerfully seeking God's guidance? Am I responding to success as I see God's will play out in my life? Am I responding to that with humble worship of God? Am I, am I playing my role? My part in God's grand plan of redemption, remembering it's not about me. But it's about Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, receiving the glory that he is worthy of. In short, church, when we submit our way to God's way, we can expect that that way is going to prosper in our lives. I want to close with Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You know this, you could probably say it with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the amazing work you did in the life of that servant of Abraham. God, we don't even know his name. Oh, but God, you know his name. And you know that he submitted to your word and your way and your will in his life. And he trusted that you were big enough and powerful enough and in control enough and loved him enough to do what you said you would do. God, help us to learn from him. God, may our lives be about Jesus. God, that doesn't mean that our lives will be free from suffering. In fact, Lord, you tell us that if we walk in the path of Jesus, we, we will walk in the path of suffering because that's the path that Jesus walked. But your will and your way will prosper in our lives and we will get the joy of experiencing you, experiencing you use us in your grand plan of redemption. 
that will culminate in the nations worshiping Jesus. So, Father, help us to walk in Your way by Your grace and for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.